0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Luke, book of Luke, chapter 13. Excuse me, wow. The question we'll be considering, the question that Jesus poses this morning in these verses is, what is God's kingdom like? What is God's kingdom like? In other words, what will it be like when God begins to exercise all his authority on earth? What will it be like when God begins to exercise all his authority on earth? We need a little bit of, of background here. Because I, I think the closest question that we ask to what's being asked in these verses is, uh, how do we get to heaven or what will heaven be like? But you see, Jews and also the Bible, the perspective of the Bible is not only, we don't just go to heaven when we die and then sit on a cloud, play a harp, that's not, that's not what things are going to look like. The perspective of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible is that God created the earth as he did in the Garden of Eden and man dwelled with God there. But after sin, the earth was corrupted, man was corrupted, the corruption was Pervasive. But the story and the hope of the Bible is that God will return. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, once to the earth before to bring salvation to mankind. But Jesus will return again. And God's kingdom will be on earth. You see in the book, latter chapters of the book of Revelation, if you, you see God's kingdom, another city, and that heavenly dwelling, where is it coming from? Where is it going? It's coming down. It's coming to earth. And so, when we ask this question, what is God's kingdom like? The question we're asking is, what will it be like when God returns? When God makes everything perfect? A little bit more uh, background, Jews of this time in the Gospels believed that it was all going to happen at once. They were waiting for God to come through his Messiah and to make everything perfect. They believed that God would come through the Messiah and set up a government kingdom. And so this is why if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see many times that they're wanting to make Jesus king. They're wanting to make him a king then and there. See, they expected that the Messiah would come only once. He would not suffer, but he would rule over everything. He would throw out the Roman rulers and that he would give the Jews the king. The kingdom. This is why you see so much misunderstanding in the Gospels. And so so many times the Pharisees don't understand what Jesus is doing. And even the disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing. In Acts chapter 1, they ask Jesus, you think these disciples would have it figure out. But they ask Jesus, when are you going to give the kingdom to us? You see there's still this misunderstanding about what Jesus was doing and how he was doing it. But this is the question Jesus poses to us this morning, is what will the kingdom of God be like? I want to speak to the children for just a moment. You guys, have you heard some s- stories about kings, right? You like, you like stories about kings and how, the, how they rule over everything, and about all their kingdoms and what goes on in their land. Well, the story of the Bible is about a great king. The story of the Bible is about not a mean king, but a great loving king who is kind to all his people. He is powerful like a lion. He can rule over every people. But he's gentle like a lamb. He is kind, he's loving. Even those people who you think are insignificant, who don't matter much. Those are the people that God loves. You see, God uses people who don't seem like they matter very much. Small people, he uses them in great, great ways. This is God's kingdom, and this is the story of the Bible. That God is a great ruler that he sent his son Jesus to rule over his people. And for those people who you don't know how to obey God and walk with God, God sent his son Jesus so that we might see him and know how to love him and to obey him. So this morning, children, what I want you to see, what we need to see is that God is a great loving king. He heals those who are hurt. He loves them. Who are those who are rejected and who don't matter to other people, God cares for them. The main points that we will see this morning is that what happens in the kingdom, first, is that seemingly insignificant lives are transformed. Seemingly insignificant lives are transformed. Hypocrites are exposed in God's kingdom. God's kingdom does not permit hypocrites. And then we will see two kingdom illustrations, two illustrations of what the kingdom of God is like. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13, and we're going to be reading verses 10 through 21. Will you stand with me this morning as we read these verses? Beginning in verse 10, it says, Now he, being Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This was Saturday for the Jewish people, you'll remember. And the synagogue is simply a Jewish church. And there was a woman who had 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 a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, ought she have been loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore... What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would speak clearly through your word this morning, that you would show us the truths about your son that you sent for our salvation. Lord, the significance of this story, Lord, and that you would transform our hearts, that we would not be just religious people, Father, but that we would be like the woman who we would cry out to you for help, that we would seek you for help. Speak to our hearts this morning, Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. As we begin this morning, it's helpful to know exactly where we are, where we are. Where is Jesus going? Where is he and what's he doing? Well, if you look back to Luke 9, 51, you don't have to turn there, but I'll tell you simply what it says. It says that at that time, Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem. Also in chapter 13 verse 22 it reminds us it says in verse 22 that he was journeying toward Jerusalem. Now why is he journeying towards Jerusalem? Well, right before that passage in Luke 9:51 verses 43 through 45 of chapter 9, Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to Jerusalem to die. He is going to Jerusalem and there, he is going to be beaten and he is going to be crucified. He says this again in Luke uh, chapter 13, verse 33. It says at the end of that verse, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. You see, this whole journey, Jesus knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. So, in this journey from the middle of chapter 9, there on to Luke chapter 24, we have several chapters left. He arrives in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. And so when Jesus says he's, he's on his way to Jerusalem, it's not something he's going to be speed walking all the way to Jerusalem. It means that in his heart and in his mind, he knew where he was headed. He knew what was going to happen. And on the way, Jesus is sharing parables, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. The candles that we have here this morning rep- represent this last week of Jesus' life, his, his journey to Jerusalem. You see that we have one blown out. The darkness is coming until Good Friday when all will be dark, as Dr. David said. And then on Resurrection Sunday we will come and every candle will be lit to signify that Jesus has risen and the light has come, salvation has come for mankind. As we look at these particular verses this morning, we need to remember that the gospel writers are like artists. They're, they're very much connecting things together. So these stories are not isolated. And right before verse 10, there's a story about a barren fig tree. And Jesus talks about that barren fig tree and says that if it should not bear fruit the next year, that it would be cut down. When Jesus says these things, he's speaking about the people of Jerusalem, the religious leaders. They are not bearing fruit. They're not accepting his kingdom, his message. They're not accepting him. And this story ties in to what we're about to read about a woman who is insignificant. Yet she's significant to Jesus. And a religious leader who is critical of this great miraculous healing Healing, excuse me. So what happens to the kingdom, in the kingdom? First, seemingly insignificant lives are transformed. Let's look look at what Luke says about this woman. She had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. This woman would have been literally bent over like, like this. She could not just look easily into people's eyes. She was unable to straighten herself. That's all in verse 11. And also in verse 16, we see... Luke says that this woman, uh, from Jesus' words, she was bound by Satan. One thing to note immediately is that Luke is a doctor. If you've been in our Bible study classes on Sunday mornings, you know, know some background about Luke. Luke is a writer, but he's also a doctor. He served as Paul's doctor. And, but Luke, even this medical doctor who was for uh, biology, he was for all these things... He would have been for medicine. He recognizes that humans are made up of more than just the physical. They are also made up of the spiritual. And so while this physical thing was coming out, there was a spiritual root. You see, sometimes when people are sick, it's not just the physical thing that we need to jump to. This is why in James, he even says, pray over the sick. Excuse me trouble this morning pray over the sick and so if there are any of you who are sick in here and you would like to be prayed over that's something we love to do we acknowledge that God has the power to heal and that he desires to pray that people would be healed we acknowledge that God does not have to heal but he does have the power to and in some cases he does and so this woman had a physical disposition that had a spiritual root she had a disabling spirit But also there's the fact that this has been going on for 18 difficult years. Those of you who've had uh, pain for a lengthy period of time can somewhat grasp what's going on here. This woman, every step required a great deal of effort. She's trying to walk like this every day, all day. Eating and drinking is difficult, along with all of life's other necessities, even using the restroom. Many of you can think of people who've battled with this chronic pain, and this woman had no relief. She didn't have medicine or anything that she could take to relieve it. This is what this lady had dealt with. So there's just the difficulty of this. But this disability also came with being socially ostracized rejected, completely insignificant to her society. You see, the phrase where it says, Luke says that she was bent over, it does mean a physical disposition, but it actually refers to her social standing. She was humble in the sight of others. You might remember the disciples questioned Jesus in John chapter 9. They referred to a blind man and said, who sinned, Jesus, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus responds that it was so that the work of God could be revealed. You see, this society had this very strict understanding, very narrow mindset that every person gets what they deserve on earth. So if you were good, you would be rich, you would be blessed by God, but if you were bad, if you had sinned, then you would receive some physical ailment or poverty, whatever it may be, and so... This woman was the victim of the strict but false mindset that people just get what they deserved. And so she was socially ostracized in every way. They saw her as a sinner. So Jesus is committing several social ills here. First, look at what Jesus does when he sees her. Remember that the text says that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. The, The pastor of the synagogue, the preacher... When Jesus came in, he allowed him to speak, right? So he's teaching in the synagogue. Jesus is at the front, and it says he was teaching, and he saw this woman. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her. So while Jesus is teaching, he brings this socially ostracized woman front and center. This woman who is set aside in her community, the people didn't even acknowledge her. Jesus brings her front and center. So you can imagine these people sitting in the congregation. What is he about to do with this woman? He brings her front and center in front of everyone. And he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And then it says that he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. So Jesus brings this woman who's rejected by society, front and center of the synagogue, heals her, and he also touches her. Now, this touch isn't sensual, but it is inappropriate for a man to touch a woman like this in public, particularly a sinner. But consider why he's touching her and what this touch must have meant to her. The text doesn't speak of this woman's husband, but if her husband was anything like these other religious men among them, he probably left her when this condition came on so he wouldn't be shamed. You see, he would have been shamed by all all society if his wife was like this. But this woman walks in. She had not received attention for some years. She She could barely look people in the eye, rejected by everyone around her in her community. But she walks in, and Jesus, at the front of the synagogue, says, come up here. And he not only says you're healed, he didn't have to touch her. But he does. So he heals her and he touches her. He shows love. He shows compassion. So this seemingly very insignificant woman is transformed by Jesus. By Jesus. Let's look at what happens in the story next. We'll we'll come back to this. The ruler of the synagogue, it says in verse 14 that he was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, if you look in your notes, I have a couple references there. One is to Exodus 20, verse 9. This is part of the Ten Commandments and also Deuteronomy 5, 13. These are where the law of the Sabbath are defined, where they are laid out. There is a law that says that you should not work on the Sabbath. But look what this ruler does the synagogue ruler. He says Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and so he is equating this healing of Jesus with work. Now let's, let's talk about this for a moment. The, the law of God is good, right? He gives it for our good. He desires that we rest. He desired that these people take a day off to meditate on God's goodness, to rest and acknowledge God's greatness, that it is really God who works and who provides all things. So this was a good law. This was helpful for the people. But here's what religious people do. And I'll give an illustration that I've heard other pastors give. Like when you build a fence so that your children or dogs can play in the yard and be protected. You build that fence to help them. It's a boundary. But it's not a bad boundary. It's for their good. It's for their protection. This is what God has done with the law. He's given us the law to keep us, to protect us. It's for our good. But religious people do this. They say, well, th- that fence is good, but we really need another fence within that fence just to make sure that we don't get over that fence. And so religious people go ahead and they build another fence within the law that God has given so that we don't cross the fence that God has given us. We talked about this in Titus. When you had law upon law, this is what false teachers, what religious people do. And then eventually they come along and say, well, you know, that even that second fence, if you aren't careful, you could really get over that fence too. So let's build another fence, one higher, and make sure that we could never get over that fence and cross God's law. This is what religious people do, and this is what this religious leader has done. And so they reject what Jesus has done. They equate it with working on the Sabbath So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do with this religious man? He asks two questions. The first question is to expose his hypocrisy. You see, what religious people do is they make caveats to their own laws when it serves them well. Listen to Jesus' question. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? That's the first question. You see, these religious leaders, they thought, well, I, I, you know, this is a good donkey. I need to make sure that I take care of him. Let me untie him and go get him water. We need to be careful about this, friends. You see, we set up laws even within our own minds that Christians should or shouldn't do that aren't necessarily in the Bible. Yet, sometimes we create our own caveats. But it's okay because we did it. But friends, that's just an interpretation. That's not God's law. But this is what this hypocrite did. He created this caveat. He stretched it for himself. And Jesus says, you do this. His second question. The second question he asked is based in the principal purpose of the Sabbath. Listen to his question. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? First listen to what Jesus, the, the, the name that, this, that Jesus gives to this woman, the dignity. She is a daughter of Abraham. That means a daughter, a child of God. This is what these religious people would least expect. The woman who walked hunched over for 18 years, who appeared to them insignificant and just like a sinner, she is a true daughter of Abraham. Made so by Jesus. By his touch, his kindness, his compassion. But also, shouldn't she be loose specifically, Jesus says, on the Sabbath day? What's the purpose of the Sabbath day. This is what Jesus is referring to. The purpose of the Sabbath was to be rest for God's people. But even more than that. It was a foreshadowing of the rest that God's people will experience forever in eternity. You see this is what we will do forever. Is we will enjoy God's rest. When we take days of rest in which we just enjoy God and his creation. This is what we are experiencing. A foreshadowing of all that God will give us. But this is also rest in which we experience what God, when God has made all things right. When our sins, our tears, our, all our deformities are done away with. This is what the Sabbath is made for. It's a foreshadowing of all that God has planned for us and intended for this. So when Jesus says, shouldn't she be made well on the Sabbath? This woman who believes in Yahweh, she's hurt. There's no greater day for her to be healed than the day of rest that God's given to his people. The Sabbath is a foreshadowing of all eternity. And so there's no greater day that she should be made well and experience God's healing power than on that day which God has given as a foreshadowing for his eternal rest. This is how Jesus points out the hypocrisy. That this man doesn't even understand the nature of the Sabbath and that he makes caveats for his own laws. One more question here. What does it mean that Jesus cast out this disabling spirit on the Sabbath? On the day for God's rest. Another place where the kingdom of God is mentioned. Luke 11 verse 20. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. Jesus making a bold statement. He is encountering Satan. This woman is said to have a disabling spirit. And he, by casting out this disabling spirit on Satan, is saying, the kingdom of God is here now. But again, the religious leaders couldn't understand this because they had their own idea about what the kingdom of God should look like. Before we transition to the next verses, I want to just ask, you a question and do a review. Where do you find yourself in this story? This story of a woman who's bent over for 18 years, who finds herself being seen as very insignificant, who feels, no doubt, very insignificant in her community and in her society. No doubt feels the weight of rejection that she's felt by these people year after year. No doubt she's taken that that identity that they gave her as a sinner and she feels the burden of it. She is nothing but a sinner. Because of her sin, God has given her this physical deformity. Do you feel like that sometimes? Do you feel insignificant? And men, just so you know, you can identify with the woman too. That's okay. Do you feel rejected? Do you feel helpless? Do you feel like you mean nothing for the kingdom of God? You are the one that the Holy Spirit wants to minister to this morning, friend. God has sent His Holy Spirit that He might comfort you That he might know that you're significant to Jesus. That you might know you're significant to Jesus. You who felt pain for years and years. Yes, there is a possibility that God would heal you. That God would bring that healing. And we would love to pray over you about that. But even if he doesn't, that the Holy Spirit will be with you as you suffer through all of it. That the crucifixion that Jesus experienced was for you. For your salvation. That you might know his joy. And so even as you experience suffering, know that Jesus suffered for you. That you might have relationship with him. And so delight in Jesus. Delight in God. So do you identify with this woman? Or do you identify with this overly critical religious person. This is where I identify sometimes. When things of the kingdom, when things don't don't go the way that I think they should, when some churches are successful that I don't think should necessarily be successful. This is how I feel sometimes. God, why them? God, why have you chosen to do it this way? Are you the overly critical, religious person? Do you sit in sermons and just critique? Or do you let the Holy Spirit minister to you and humble you? Do you say, well, there wasn't really much in there for me? You're the overly critical religious person. And notice, please notice in that story, Jesus rebukes this religious person very boldly, but the only one he heals is the woman. You see, here's the issue. If you want to know God, you have to become like the woman. All of us in our hearts, all of us at some point, we are that helpless, insignificant person. We are the sinner who is bent over and we cannot straighten up. This is where we are in our hearts, every single one of us, when we're born to the time when we know Christ. And until you know that you're helpless, you can't be helped. Friend, to know God, you must be like that bent-over woman. You must be healed by Jesus. But again, hear me this morning. The Holy Spirit is saying, I will heal you. All you have to do is repent, humble yourself. Don't wait for some feeling. Repent. Turn to God. He will heal you. Religious people, are you hearing the rebuke of Jesus? How do you become like this woman? Well, first, it is by the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit. You don't do it yourself, but it is through repentance, your repentance. It's through receiving these rebukes of Jesus. So, what happens in the kingdom? What does the kingdom of God look like? Seemingly insignificant lives are transformed, people are changed. This should be happening in our body all the time. And then hypocrites are exposed. Hypocrites can't survive where true religion is living. Where Jesus lives, hypocrites can't stand it. So hypocrites should not survive here. The second point is just two kingdom illustrations. Jesus gives us two kingdom illustrations in verses 18 through 21. The first one is, what is the kingdom of God like? Again, what will it look like when God rules on earth and exercises all his authority on earth? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The kingdom is like a small seed that becomes a tree. This is the first part that Jesus discusses. This, This mustard seed is just very small. It was known to be the smallest seed in this area. And what Jesus is contrasting is the smallness of the seed that grows to be this tree in which birds from all over come and take rest, refuge. But also, there's the point that this, great, this seed. It grows slowly and often discreetly. You see, the, the seed is buried in the ground. You can't even see it at first. And then when it does grow, you can't see it necessarily growing. But every now and then you notice that it has grown. But it occurs in real time. What Jesus is saying is to these religious people, to these people who think that God's kingdom, he's just going to come as a military ruler and he's going to thro- overthrow everything. That's not the way it's going to come. Jesus is saying, my kingdom, it will grow from this small thing, even a band of 12 disciples, to thousands on Pentecost, and even now to billions, and even now it grows slowly. And we may not always feel its growth, but Jesus is saying, it does grow You see, this is very much like our growth in the gospel, personally, our sanctification. It doesn't come all at once. There's no miracle grow that we can pour on ourselves and make ourselves just grow leaps and bounds at one time. That's the trouble with Christianity, right? It's difficult. But it occurs through the work of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis as we pursue the Lord, as we trust in him. This is what the kingdom is like. The birds. The birds are a symbol of those who come from afar. What Jesus is saying is this tree is going to come up. And it's not available to just one select people group. But the birds come from everywhere. He's, it's a foreshadowing that the Gentiles will come in as well. We are those Gentiles. People from all over the world are welcome in this tree. The kingdom is open to all people. But why do they come? Why do they come to this tree? It's for refuge and for shelter. You see it grew, it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. It's a place for protection. The kingdom of God is a pleasant place to dwell and it protects those who live under its shade. All people need this rest. All people need to be protected. All people need the peace of God, and the only place you find it is in the kingdom of God when you submit to his rule, to his great love, and to his great kindness. The second illustration Jesus gives, the kingdom of God is like a small amount of yeast and a large amount of flour. He says in verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is a common picture in this day of a woman making bread. But he says that it's leaven put into three measures of flour. This would actually be 50 pounds of flour. This bread would feed a lot of people. And so what Jesus is saying is that again, the growth may come slowly. This leaven is going to be put into the bread. Again, again, it's like the seed. You can't necessarily see it with the naked eye. This is why you need the Holy Spirit to show you the kingdom of God. But it does grow, it grows slowly, but it does grow. The kingdom of God is coming, it's growing. I was reminded of one of the subtle ways the kingdom grows. This week, we were at management team meeting, and Byron was giving Byron Townsend, who's our missions pastor at Grace and church planner, he is giving a report of the work at Bugiri Baptist Church in Uganda. Which, in case you don't know, CrossPoint partners with Bugiri Baptist Church in Uganda and has so for the last five years. Bugiri, the pastor there, has only been there for six years, and that church was not even known in the community at that time when he came. It's been a very short time. But when Crosspoint, just over a little, a little over a year ago, decided to send Byron out to Grace to replant Grace Baptist Church in Mid-City, when Bugiri Baptist Church heard about this, and mind you, Bugiri Baptist Church is about 100 people who gather weekly there and have, have just become very recognized within the community, that church said, we can do that. We can do that same thing. They heard about a church in Baton Rouge, a church in Uganda, heard about a small church in Baton Rouge or mid-sized church sending out a missions pastor to a church down the road. And a church over in Uganda, Africa, said, we can do that. And they sent out a pastor to another village to plant a church. You see, this is how the kingdom grows. Sometimes its simplicity fools us. We don't understand it. We can't always see it and it even discourages us sometimes. But Jesus says this is what the kingdom will be like. It will be faithful obedience on the part of God's people. Even small acts, not necessarily heroic acts, but faithful acts of obedience. No one knew Pastor Youssef Nardarkani several years ago. But he's seen as a faithful man of God now. He challenges people all across the world because he is arrested. He's been faithful and his life is in danger. Yet he will not, he will not leave the gospel. He will not recant. Friend, this is how the kingdom of God grows among us. So, the kingdom to God today, it's God's powerful presence in the midst of his special people. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. Again, the Pharisees are asking when the kingdom of God was going to come. And he answers them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for indeed the, coming, the kingdom of God is in your midst. What's funny about this is the Pharisees were asking for signs. Not long ago, Jesus had just, he had just done a miracle. Yet they're asking for more signs. This is what religious people do. They beg for God to do something different because God's not doing it in the way they want Him to. Friends, will you open your eyes and see? God has done it. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Turn now. He will come. But also, in this sense, the kingdom of God is not the church. We need to remember this and keep this distinction. The kingdom of God is not the church because there's a great aspect of the kingdom that is still to come. Only God brings the kingdom. We don't. So, what is the point of all of this? Christians, be encouraged. God's kingdom is growing. And it is growing in his time and in his place. Will you be faithful is the question. Will you submit to his kingdom in every way. Will you be obedient. And this is how God's kingdom will continue to grow among us. As a body. As global Christianity. Unbelievers. God's rule has come. The kingdom is now, it is here, but it is not yet. This is what we say. It's now and not yet. It was inaugurated by Jesus when He came, and it will come to its fulfillment when He returns. But it has come, and He is waiting for you to repent. He is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If you don't repent, you will stand judged before God for your sins that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem so that he might die on a cross and his blood might cover your sins. Will you repent? Will you confess Jesus as your Savior and live within his rule and his reign, his kingdom? And one more group, one more group, religious people. Those of you who say that you know Christ, you've grown up in church all your life, maybe. Maybe. But you become angry sometimes at the way things happen. You have your own kind of set of rules. And you're offended when people don't do things the way you would like them to do it. Friend, that is religion. And that is not Jesus. You must bow. You must bow to him. And you must trust in Jesus alone and not your religion. That will not save you. So we're going to pray this morning. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know faith in Christ and what living in the kingdom is like, don't understand that, then please come forward. I'd love to talk with you. If you don't this morning, at any time afterwards, you're available to talk and would love to talk with you about what it means to know Jesus as Savior. Religious person, will you just repent and turn to Christ? Will you accept his rebuke? And will you bow to him? And those of you who feel like that woman and identify as, as, with that woman, know that his grace is near and that you are significant to Jesus. You are significant to Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Father, we pray. Thanking you.